You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to get back to some classic Age of Discovery stuff, courtesy of a not particularly well-known explorer named Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. Cabrillo was a conquistador, taking part in Cortez's campaign against the Aztecs, but he is best remembered as the first non-native to reach the western coast of the United States. In fact, if you go to Southern California, you'll see all sorts of stuff with Cabrillo's name on it, but outside of the area, he's in that second or third tier of explorers from the era. But the man did some pretty big things in his life, which we will detail today. Two notes before we start. First, I have put a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, to show the route that Cabrillo took on the expedition up the North American coast, so check it out. And second, shout out to David, a history teacher from Oceanside, California, who asked me about doing a show on Cabrillo. David was kind enough to get me some books on the guy to help spur the process, so thank you, David. That is it for notes. Let's get going. The life of Spanish conquistador and explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. Cabrillo was born in Spain in 1499, give or take a year. We don't know the exact date. And to be honest, some argue his birthplace was Portugal. The reason for this is that an early historian identified Cabrillo as Portuguese, and thus some subsequent historians and scholars accepted that assertion. The Portuguese were quick to claim Cabrillo as one of their own, and to this day, some are reluctant to give him up. However, most evidence points to Cabrillo being Spanish. Specifically, it is believed that he was born in present-day Palma del Rio in the province of Cordoba in southern Spain. All that said, in the end, it really doesn't matter that much where Cabrillo was born, as he will serve Spain throughout his life. So Cabrillo was born in 1499. However, his birth name was Juan Rodriguez, not Cabrillo. Our explorer would not take the name Cabrillo until the mid-1530s, when he was a successful conquistador. The reason for this is that Juan Rodriguez is an extremely common name in Spain, sort of like John Smith, and it was customary for a successful or important person to add a surname to distinguish himself from all the other Juan Rodriguez's of the world. That said, I will call our explorer Cabrillo from the start, just to make things easy for all of us. Now, virtually nothing is known about Cabrillo's childhood. It is believed he came to Cuba around 1510, still a youngster. Historian Harry Kelsey, who has written several biographies of men from the era, including Cabrillo, suggests that our explorer was an orphan and that he may have come to the New World as a servant or apprentice to a merchant family. If that's true, we don't know for sure. However, I do want to note that Cabrillo was educated as he could read and write. We have some documents of Cabrillo's, and from them you can see an orderly and efficient person. However, his writing style isn't ornate or flowery, a trait amongst someone from a well-to-do family. Thus, it's probably safe to say that Cabrillo was from simple stock, but that he gained a solid education in his younger years. Another thing I want to note about Cabrillo, we have no portrait of the man. Thus, whatever drawings you see in books or wherever is speculative. No matter, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo would grow into a young man in the wild and often violent era of European exploration of the Caribbean. We know that during this time, he would become a soldier serving in Cuba and possibly Hispaniola. But in addition to being a soldier, Cabrillo showed additional talents. One Spanish conquistador at this time said that Cabrillo was not only a good soldier, but also a, quote, man of the sea, end quote. How exactly Cabrillo acquired this additional skill set, we don't know, but he will show himself to be a quality soldier and an excellent shipbuilder. These talents will help him go far in the New World. This takes us up to 1519 and the invasion of Mexico by Hernán Cortés. 
Now, we covered these events in our series on Cortez, so what follows is a high-level review of the campaign and Caprillo's role in the events. Well, Cortez would, for a variety of reasons, incur the wrath of Cuban governor Diego Vallesquez. The latter would order Cortez not to leave on his expedition, but would be ignored. So, while Cortez was making his way west towards Tenochtitlan, Vallesquez was organizing a new expedition, one to go to Mexico and put Cortez under arrest. The new expedition consisted of more than a thousand soldiers, including Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, under the command of Panfilo de Narvaez. Cabrillo is listed as a crossbowman. Now, once Narvaez and his army arrived in Mexico, many of the men began to wonder why a Spanish army was out to fight another Spanish army, and Cortez fueled this dissension. He sent agents into the ranks of Narvaez's men, distributing bribes, often in gold, to key people. Stories soon spread that Cortez was in Tenochtitlan, collecting piles of gold and jewels and other valuables. And thus, many men were like, hey, let's not fight Cortez, let's join him. It is said that upwards of a quarter of Narvaez's force was sympathetic to Cortez. Cortez would then make a forced march on Narvaez's camp and, despite being heavily outnumbered, make a surprise nighttime attack in the rain. The result was a complete victory for Cortez. Narvaez was captured, losing an eye in the battle. There was actually not that much fighting in the conflict. Much of this was due to the groundwork laid by Cortez's agents. The soldiers sympathetic to Cortez simply dropped their weapons and ordered the men to do likewise, that sort of thing. In one fell swoop, Cortez had thus added 1,000 men to his ranks. Now, I focus a lot on this moment because there is speculation that Cabrillo was one of those men sympathetic to Cortez. And the reason for this is because Cabrillo is quickly given important responsibilities and will be well rewarded for his service to Cortez later on. No matter the real story, Cabrillo would join up with Cortez and be an important man in the upcoming campaign against the Aztecs. Cabrillo was a crossbowman, attaining the rank of corporal, maybe higher, and was put in command of a group of bowmen. This was an important job, as you had to be strong, disciplined, and trustworthy. Crossbowmen were essential to the army as they were so deadly, and a crossbow was much more reliable than the early firearms of the era, called arquebuses. Now, Cabrillo likely would have marched west to Tenochtitlan and endured La Noche Triste, a.k.a. the Night of Sorrows, when Cortez's army tried to slip out of the city, only to be nearly wiped out by the Aztecs. Well, as we know from our podcast on Cortez, the man was not done. He would regroup to the east and eventually march back toward the Aztec capital, forming a powerful coalition with the native peoples who did not like the Aztecs. Now, Cortez believed one of the keys to defeating the Aztecs was controlling Lake Texcoco, the large body of water that Tenochtitlan sat on. For this, Cortez ordered 13 ships, brigantines, constructed. These ships would be built, then taken apart, and marched over the mountains and into the Valley of Mexico. It was a tremendous feat of engineering. Once at Lake Texcoco, the boats were put back together. At this point, they had to be sealed so they wouldn't leak. For this, you needed pitch and tallow. Bernal Diaz, who was an officer in Cortez's army, later said that Cabrillo, who he identified as a captain, was put in charge of this task. Pitch, or resin, was gathered from the trees in the mountains. That was simple enough. But tallow, a form of rendered fat, is traditionally made from beef cattle. However, since the Spanish had no cattle, they had to turn to a different source, and this would be the fat from the bodies of the dead natives. Yeah, kind of grisly. Anyhow, the cocked-up Spanish fleet would, indeed, take control of Lake Texcoco and Cortez and his native Indian allies, would eventually isolate the Aztec capital. What followed next was an 85-day siege of the great city. As for Cabrillo, he was a part of the siege. There's a good chance he would have helped with the boats and was a crossbowman on one of them. The boats were critical to keeping supplies and reinforcements out of Tenochtitlan and from anyone escaping. 
the end result would be the destruction of Tenochtitlan and the Aztec Empire. Cabrillo would be wounded in the fighting, but the exact nature of his injury is unknown. However, it is not believed to have been serious. Now, the defeat of the Aztec Empire did not mean that the fighting was over. Far from it. After the Aztecs, the Spanish turned to the surrounding areas, looking for more treasure and land to satiate their appetites. Also, the fact that the Pacific Ocean was not far away offered tantalizing options to the Spanish. Remember, word had not yet arrived about Magellan's expedition and their circumnavigation of the world. People thought that Asia was a short jump across the ocean, so while men like Cortes conquered and looted the lands of Central America, they were also thinking about sailing to the Far East, a new route to the fabled lands of China and the Spice Islands. As for Cabrillo, he would be on the move as a soldier, first under Captain Francisco de Orozco, to what is now Oaxaca, Mexico, about 225 miles southwest of Tenochtitlan, or 360 kilometers. The Spanish had been told that much of the gold of the Aztecs had come from this region. The Spanish pitted the two main indigenous powers of the region against one another, a common tactic of theirs, and would ultimately come out as victors in the fighting. Cabrillo's role is not exactly known, but it is clear that he was moving up in the world, and that is because he was listed as having a horse. Horses were, at this time, rare and extremely valuable. To have one meant that he was well off and likely an important officer. All this leads me back to the story of Cortez's victory over Narvaez and the speculation that Cabrillo was one of the men who backed Cortez in the conflict. I mean, we just have to look at the facts. After Cortez defeated Narvaez and took his troops into his army, Cabrillo did very well for himself. He appears to have been an important person in the building of the fleet of brigantines that took control of Lake Texcoco, and he took part in the siege of Tenochtitlan. And here he was, rising up in the ranks, the owner of a horse, and being called a captain. It's all a sign that Cabrillo had good connections, which lends credence to the theory that he was a supporter of Cortez from the start. Again, we have no proof of this, but the idea is not far-fetched. By the way, Cabrillo's rise also points to something else, and that is that he was very good at his job. I can't stress this enough. All we know about Cabrillo demonstrates that he was an extremely competent and effective man. Anyhow, after defeating the Mixtec people in Oaxaca, Cabrillo would be offered lands in the area as payment for his service. He would turn down the offer, instead joining up with another of Cortez's captains, Pedro de Alvarado. Alvarado was considered one of Cortez's most effective and ruthless captains. He would, often with Cabrillo by his side, spend the next decade conquering the surrounding lands, as well as suppressing the rebellions that usually followed. Alvarado often got what he wanted without a fight due to his reputation. Backed by Spanish soldiers and weapons, plus native allies, he would march into an area, tell the locals to submit, or face his wrath which was very real and very deadly. Under the command of Alvarado, Cabrillo would take part in the 1524 conquest of Guatemala. Again, he was identified as an important officer in the army, the commander of a squad of crossbowmen. Later on, Cabrillo's son would say that his father helped, quote, conquer every part of the provinces of Guatemala and Honduras, end quote. In Guatemala, Alvarado did his typical thing, allying with one local native power against another. After defeating one of the powers and their allies in a great battle, Alvarado would turn on his ally and solidify Spanish dominance. It was here that Cabrillo was again offered lands as a reward for his service, and this time he accepted. On August 12, 1524, Juan Rodriguez signed as a citizen of Santiago, the province's new capital. He was the 19th man on the list of the newly formed community. Now, the new capital would be moved several times before finding a suitable location in 1527, this was in the valley of Almalunga. As a horseman in the army, he was handsomely rewarded, getting a farm measuring 600 by 1400 paces, 
a regular foot soldier got a fraction of that. In time, these lands would become very valuable as part of the encomienda system. We have talked about the encomienda system in past episodes, but as a reminder, it's not just about getting land, it's about getting the labor as well. This meant that all those who lived on the land were, essentially, slaves to it. The people had to do whatever the boss wanted. If it meant farming, they farmed. If it meant mining, they mined. And those living on the lands could not leave without permission from the land's owner. The landlord was supposed to care and feed and educate his or her people, as well as instruct them in the Catholic faith, but it was pretty much communal slavery. Cabrillo would spend time in Guatemala building up his properties, as well as campaigning with Alvarado. This included marching around the lands of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. War was waged in the latter region due to a revolt by another conquistador, Cristobal de Olid, in 1526. Olid would be hanged for his insurrection. As a note, Guatemala was not the healthiest or easiest place to live. Much of it is mountainous, as well as hot and humid. However, Santiago's new location was cooler, and the temperatures were not so extreme. Plus, the nearby lands were good for farming. At the new location, Cabrillo would, again, be one of the first citizens of the city. And very quickly, he and his fellow Spaniards prospered. Soon, others would come to the settlement. The farms would grow maize, and their orchards flourished. Cacao, the seeds from which cocoa and chocolate are made, would also become a valuable cash crop. And then, in 1529, Cabrillo was given permission to search for gold in the region of Coban. It wouldn't take long for gold to be found, and Cabrillo would become one of the richest men in Guatemala, if not the richest. So, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo was a rich, successful landowner and soldier, and he only continued to prosper as he gradually added more lands to his portfolio. Now, Cabrillo had, during this time, acquired a native woman as his wife. We don't know her name, only that the couple had three daughters, all of whom would marry conquistadors later in life. However, a native wife was not seen as good enough for a man of Cabrillo's growing importance. And thus, he struck a deal with fellow conquistador Diego Sanchez de Ortega. Cabrillo would go to Spain and court Ortega's sister, Beatriz. As a result, Cabrillo would spend nearly a year in Spain before returning with his new bride in 1533. By the way, the Spanish crown wanted many of these conquistadors to settle down and begin the process of colonizing the New World. To that end, they were ordered to marry or lose their valuable encomiendas. The problem with this was that there were so few Spanish women in the New World, and many of the conquistadors could not afford to go abroad like Cabrillo. As a result, Pedro de Alvarado brought back 20 young women from Spain, specifically to find husbands amongst the now wealthy conquistadors. However, these veteran soldiers were now aging, and many were infirm. One young Spanish lady said this of these prospective husbands, quote, Some are lame, some with but one hand, others without ears, others with only one eye, others with their face gone, and the best of them have one or two cuts across the forehead, end quote. It's a reminder that life as a conquistador was hard, although Cabrillo doesn't seem to have suffered too greatly from his life as a soldier. We will talk about the conquistadors of the era later on when we wrap up this episode. So Cabrillo would prosper. He had a new wife, who was soon pregnant with a son, and he owned four different tracts of land in Guatemala. Cabrillo would then move on to another phase of his career, that of a shipbuilder and trader. Now, by this time, Spanish exploration of the western coast of North and South America was underway. For the Spanish, the big prize that emerged was Peru and the Inca Empire. In the early 1530s, Francisco Pizarro had undertaken an expedition to conquer the Inca Empire. Cabrillo wanted to get in on the action, not by sailing off on another military expedition, but by building ships and transporting and trading goods to and from Peru. Like any booming frontier region, 
goods sold at a very high price in Peru, and trading was often more lucrative than mining or stealing or whatever was going on. So Cabrillo would build his own ship and acquire goods that he could trade. However, his plans were waylaid by his old boss, Pedro de Alvarado. Alvarado had originally been given permission to explore to the west, but after hearing about all the loot being gathered in Peru, he decided to send an expedition to that region to get in on the action. For this, he built his own fleet, although the ships were not particularly good. But before leaving, Alvarado would see Cabrillo's fine new ship, loaded with trade goods, and take possession of it. And off to Peru he went. The guy just couldn't resist treasure or fighting. Cabrillo was, as you can imagine, upset by this, and logged a protest through official channels. Now, Alvarado would return from Peru, his venture awash as he had gotten there too late and missed out on most of the action. He would return the ship he had absconded from Cabrillo, but it was in a deplorable condition and nearly worthless. And that takes us to 1536. Cabrillo would again take to the field of battle by going to Honduras to aid Alvarado in another fight with the indigenous peoples. As a reward for this, plus repayment for the trashing of his ship, Cabrillo was awarded two more encomiendas. We have a document of this, marked July 20th, 1536, and it is the first time Juan Rodriguez officially is referred to as Cabrillo. Again, it was a sign of his growing influence and wealth. Next, Alvarado appointed Cabrillo as the chief magistrate of the port of Iztapa on the western coast of Guatemala. His job was to build a new fleet for Alvarado for exploration. This was a major endeavor, and Cabrillo had to manage not just the construction of the ships, but the means to build them. He had to bring in carpenters and shipwrights. He needed iron from Europe for nails and chains and fittings. Also from Europe came cannons, anchors, and sails. Timber came from the thick Guatemalan forests. And then there was the labor. Many natives were put to work falling trees, transporting timber, hauling supplies, and building docks and so forth. It was hard and deadly work. Bartolomé de las Casas, a Spanish priest and an early advocate for the fair and humane treatment of the native peoples, said this about the shipbuilding endeavor. Although I want to stress that while this specific quote is about Alvarado, that essentially means Cabrillo as well. No matter, here you go. Quote, He killed an infinite number of people in building the ships. From the north to the South Sea, 130 leagues the Indians carried anchors of three and four quintiles, which is 600 to 800 pounds, which cut furrows into the shoulders and loins of some of them. And he carried in the same way much artillery on the shoulders of these sad naked people. And I saw many loaded with the artillery on those anguished roads. He broke up homes, taking women and girls and giving them to the soldiers and sailors in order to keep them satisfied and bring them into his fleets. End quote. So, in the port of his tapa, the new fleet would be constructed over the next four years. Cabrillo would build or refit seven to nine ships, and at least one of these, a galleon, he built with his own money. He would also gather another four to five ships to add to the fleet, for a total of 13 vessels. In all of this, Cabrillo was acknowledged as an excellent shipbuilder. One Spanish official said Cabrillo's fleet was, quote, the largest and the best to sail the Mar du Sur, which was the Pacific Ocean, up to that time and for many years thereafter, end quote. Now I want to note that at this time, there was a jolt of exploration in the Americas. Hernan Cortez headed into northwest Mexico and discovered the Baja Peninsula in 1536, Hernando de Soto went to Florida and would traipse all over the southern United States beginning in 1539. That same year, Francisco de Oloa would sail up the western coast of New Spain and map the coastline of the Gulf of California. He would then sail up the western coast of the Baja Peninsula for a ways before turning back due to bad weather. And in 1840, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado would march across northern Mexico and into the southwest United States, 
searching for the fabled seven cities of gold. Those are just a few of the expeditions undertaken by the Spanish at this time, but remember, there was almost always a financial component involved with them. It was to reach the Spice Islands or discover the next rich native empire, such as the Inca or Aztecs. Anyhow, for Pedro de Alvarado's enterprise, he assembled more than 500 men in 13 ships. Alvarado would eventually decide to break his fleet up into two groups. One expedition, under the command of his brother, Juan de Alvarado, would go north up the coast of North America. The second expedition, under the command of Ruy Lopez Villalobos, would go west to the Far East. Initially, Cabrillo wasn't going to take part in the venture, he was simply a shipbuilder and investor. However, Alvarado begged Cabrillo to join him and he eventually relented. We do not know exactly how far Cabrillo planned to travel with the fleet. It's possible he was just going to go with them to the point where they would separate, but we don't know for sure. Now the reason for the Far East as a destination was obvious. It offered the riches of China, Japan, and the Spice Islands. As for the North, it offered a couple of opportunities. One was the legendary Strait of Anyan. This was essentially a Northwest Passage, a channel from one side of North America to the other. The key was to find the outlet on the western side of the continent. Do that and you're fabulously wealthy. The second opportunity in the North was a route to Asia. At this time, it was believed that Asia was much closer than in reality. The thought was that if one went up the coast of North America, the coastline would turn west and connect with Asia. Now, both of these opportunities were futile. The Strait of Onion just didn't exist, unless you want to count the real Northwest Passage, which was way up in the Arctic and frozen shut. And the North American coastline went way, way further north than anyone imagined, and it didn't connect to Asia. But that didn't stop people from dreaming. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. So the wheels of exploration were in motion. However, things were not going to go as planned. First, Alvarado got into a dispute with the Viceroy of New Spain, Antonio de Mendoza. Mendoza was originally supposed to get one-third of the profits from the upcoming expeditions, but he wanted more. And thus he ordered officials to withhold supplies and services to Alvarado and his fleet. Desperate to get the expedition underway, Alvarado would eventually grant Mendoza one half of the expedition's profits. 
Now, when Cabrillo heard this, he was furious. Alvarado was giving away money that should be going to investors. To appease Cabrillo, Alvarado would grant him several more properties. Alvarado's fleet would eventually set sail from Acajutla, El Salvador, reaching Navidad, Mexico, on Christmas Day, 1540. This was a newly established harbor, and from here, Cabrillo did final repairs and brought in last-minute supplies for the expected journey. Now, a reminder, the original plan was for the northern expedition to head out under the command of Alvarado's brother. It might have been Cabrillo's intention to return to Guatemala at this point. However, events would, again, overtake the fleet. About 190 miles northwest of Navidad, or 300 kilometers, was a region that was in rebellion against Spanish rule. Well, at this time, this rebellion would turn serious, as the local people were laying siege to a Spanish-controlled town. This conflict was called the Mixton War. On orders from Viceroy Mendoza, Alvarado would unload his men and weapons and march to crush the growing revolt. Cabrillo may have gone with Alvarado, but it's more likely that he stayed with the fleet and kept it ready for the expected departure. Anyhow, later that summer, Alvarado's horse would get spooked and fall over. Alvarado's chest would be crushed in the fall. He would die about 10 days later on July 4, 1541. The Mixton War, by the way, would eventually end after a long bloody fight, Spanish technology and steel winning the day. As for Cabrillo, he was left in Navidad wondering what to do. Some of the investors of the expedition would call back their ships, and Viceroy Mendoza, who had essentially inherited Alvarado's vessels, would send some of these ships north to do some minor exploring, mostly to keep them busy. Cabrillo would eventually return to Guatemala, and in doing so he would come home to an earthquake that devastated the capital of Santiago in September of 1541. Above Santiago was a volcanic lake. Well, the earthquake would cause one of the walls of the volcano to collapse, and the valley would be flooded, as well as slammed with rocks and boulders and trees and mud. Amongst the dead was the wife of Pedro de Alvarado. Cabrillo's home would be destroyed in the earthquake, but his family was spared. In the aftermath of the disaster, Cabrillo wrote and published a concise and detailed account of the destruction. It is believed to be the first secular document printed in the New World. So, while the capital of Santiago was moved, yet again, Cabrillo was tapped by Viceroy Mendoza for a new endeavor. And this new endeavor was pretty much the same as the first endeavor. It would be two expeditions, one led by Rui Lopez de Villalobos to sail to the Far East, and a second expedition would go north, led not by an Alvarado, but by Cabrillo. Now, why would Cabrillo agree to such a thing? One guess is that he needed money. His lands around Santiago had been devastated and his home destroyed, and Alvarado had owed Cabrillo a lot of money, and with his and his wife's death, the chances of getting those funds was not good. Thus, a voyage of exploration was just the ticket needed for a big financial score. And so, in 1542, Cabrillo would prepare for his voyage by heading north to Navidad. For his upcoming expedition, he would have two ships, or three if you count a smaller vessel. The flagship of the fleet would be Cabrillo's own vessel, the San Salvador, although it was usually referred to as the Juan Rodriguez after its owner. The San Salvador was a galleon, about 100 feet long and 25 feet wide, or 30 by 8 meters. It had a cargo capacity of about 200 tons, making it a big ship for the time and place. The vessel would likely have been armed with a few cannons. San Salvador was Cabrillo's pride and joy. The second ship was smaller, a 100-ton Carrick, Victoria, built primarily as a cargo vessel. The third ship was the San Miguel, a 30-foot-long frigata. The English called these ships a pinnace. While the ship had a sail, it was primarily propelled by oars, which could vary in number. One source said the San Miguel had 26 oars, which made it pretty big for its type. The ship was there for sailing through shallow waters and near the coast, when in deeper waters, San Miguel was often towed by the larger ships. 
the fleet would have in total about 200 men. Roughly half of these were on San Salvador, including four officers, 25 to 30 sailors, a couple of dozen soldiers, a priest, a few merchants and cabin boys, some slaves, servants, and miscellaneous support crew. The Carrick, Victoria, had about 60 men, while San Miguel had six to eight men, plus slaves to man the oars. Amongst the various crewmen would have been carpenters, smiths, pilots, and navigators. The decks would have been filled with animals, such as pigs, sheep, and chickens, all to feed the crew. There likely would have been some horses as well. Cabrillo's orders included multiple objectives. First, he was to look for the Strait of Anyan, the non-existent Northwest Passage. Second, he was to proceed up the coast and try to make his way to Asia. Third, he was to keep an eye out for Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, who was traipsing about the southwest of the United States. He was also to watch for Villalobos, the leader of the other expedition, in case he made his way back to New Spain from Asia. Along the way, he was to map the coast, take notes of good harbors, sources of fresh water and timber, locations to build settlements, signs of advanced native civilizations, plus indications of valuable resources such as silver and gold. He was to avoid conflict with the natives, as this was a voyage of exploration, not conquest. The fleet had supplies for two years. By the way, this does not mean that the fleet had two full years of everything they needed. They would have to find timber and fresh water along the way and supplement their diets with any kinds of food they could find or trade for. Typical meals for the men would include biscuits, sardines, and cheese. Salted meat was served on Sundays. Wine was also an essential for the crew. Each man received three glasses a day. The wealthier members of the crew, the officers and so forth, typically brought along extra food and supplies for their own use. Cabrillo's small fleet departed from Navidad on the western coast of New Spain on June 27, 1542. A reminder, I posted a map of the route of Cabrillo's journey on the website. The fleet would head up the western coast of Mexico and then cross over to the Baja Peninsula, reaching the tip of the peninsula on July 3rd. Cabrillo called it the Point of California. Today you will find the city of Cabo San Lucas. If you haven't looked at a map of our journey, the Baja Peninsula is the big appendage that sticks down the western side of Mexico, just below California. The peninsula, also called the Baja California Peninsula and Lower California, is quite a desolate place, especially in the south. It is mountainous, rugged, and dry. There are not many good harbors, and food and water is in short supply. This means there are few people. The peninsula measures about 775 miles long, or 1,250 kilometers. Cabrillo's ships would head up the coast, going slowly due to the strong winds. They also had to stop constantly to take on water, timber, and food. This wasn't so difficult at first because previous expeditions had traveled along here and had indicated where such things could be found. A note about the winds and currents of the western coast of North America. They tend to push south, making going north a difficult thing for the ships of the era. The ships generally had to wait for winds to shift to really make any headway. An example of this was early on when the fleet, with favorable winds, made 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, in a single day. They would then only go a few miles over the course of the next four days as the wind shifted. On July 26th, about halfway up the peninsula, the expedition would reach Ascension Point, just south of the big spur in the peninsula. Here they would sight trees for the first time, as well as thousands of sea lions. In early August, the expedition would reach Cedros Island, about 500 miles, or 820 kilometers, from the southern tip of the peninsula. If you're looking at a map of the peninsula, this is about two-thirds of the way up the coast, just past the big spur thingy I mentioned a moment ago. A couple of weeks later, the fleet would reach the furthest north point that any Spanish ship had gone. Historian Harry Kelsey, who wrote the definitive biography of Cabrillo, said this at the moment, quote, 
From this point onward, Cabrillo and the men would be entering uncharted waters, where no Spanish ships had been before. End quote. And so, into the unknown, pushed Cabrillo and his fleet. Going forward, they would have to find their own food and water and supplies. However, the good news was that the brutally dry, hot climate was starting to abate. The fleet would continue up the coast, stopping at one point for five days to repair the sails and recaulk the San Miguel. Now, another thing the fleet did as they moved up the coast was to take formal possession of these newly discovered lands for the King of Spain. The first time this happened was August 22nd at what is now San Quentin. This was a pretty big deal for the Spanish, and it involved a formal ceremony in which the Spanish crown and the Catholic Church took official possession of the region. This wasn't just for show, as the Spanish would use these events to demonstrate to foreign powers, such as the French or British or Portuguese, that these lands were now officially theirs. By the way, regarding the logs of the expedition, most were written by Cabrillo. They show a straightforward, methodical examination of the situation. He focused on the lands, including the flora, the fauna, the geography, the animals, and the prospects of a place. Later, as they encountered native peoples, he would describe them in detail, often adding the native names of the places they visited. I noted earlier that it demonstrates the mind of an orderly and efficient individual. So, by the middle of September, the lands improved. They reached what is now modern-day Ensenada, where they sighted what were described as sheep, although they were probably pronghorn antelope. Also, with the improving lands, the fleet began to encounter native peoples. Attempts to engage with these natives was hit and miss, as they often fled at the sight of the Spanish. One issue that Cabrillo would face was the wide variety of languages and dialects in the areas that he was going to visit. One source stated that, at this time in the Southern California area, the Spanish would have encountered 22 linguistic families with 135 dialects. This will make conversation between the two sides nearly impossible. On September 28, 1542, Cabrillo and his ships would sail into a fine bay surrounded by good lands. Cabrillo dubbed this San Miguel Bay. Today we call it San Diego. Here we have the demarcation between Upper and Lower California. It is believed that the Spanish would come ashore at Ballast Point, a small finger-like piece of land near the mouth of the bay. Here Cabrillo would claim the lands for Spain. In doing so, it was the first landing of non-native peoples on the western coast of the United States. The bay at San Diego is not just a good one, but a great one. It is one of the best, if not the best, on the west coast. It's long and wide and deep. While here a storm would strike the area, and Cabrillo and his ships would sail into the bay and find themselves almost completely protected from the harsh elements. Attempts to engage with the natives were unsuccessful as they fled from the Spanish. Subsequent encounters could have proven deadly, as several men in the fleet would be injured when the natives fired arrows at them. However, the Spanish, wisely, did not retaliate. Cabrillo wanted allies, not enemies. Things would eventually change when a few local natives would accept some gifts. Soon other people arrived, and they too were presented with gifts such as beads and cloth. It wasn't long before the natives were taking their canoes out to the Spanish ships and even coming aboard. The Indians did bring their own trade goods, including fish and fruit, items very much welcomed by the crew. Communication with the natives was, as noted, very limited. However, Cabrillo would hear stories of strange bearded men, like the Spanish, to the east. This was not the first or the last time these stories would be heard. The Indians were possibly referring to Coronado and his men, who had recently passed through New Mexico and Arizona, often fighting with the natives. Such news would easily have reached the west coast. This intrigued Cabrillo, who at one point considered sending a small force inland to try to find these strangers. Luckily he did not, as Coronado would have been hundreds of miles away, and the journey a difficult one. Instead he wrote some letters and gave them to the natives who were venturing inland, 
in the hope that they would be delivered to the mysterious bearded men. The Spanish fleet would eventually move on from San Diego and reach Santa Catalina Island on October 7th. This is a major island directly southwest about 20 miles, or 35 kilometers, from modern-day Laguna Beach. There they again went over the natives with gifts in an open and friendly manner. By the way, there are a bunch of islands off the coast of Southern California, all the way from San Diego past Los Angeles. These are the Channel Islands, of which Santa Catalina is one. The Spanish visited several of these, but we don't know for sure which ones. The voyage up the coast was a slow process, but Cabrillo took note of the mountains, valleys, and open plains, and lots of native peoples, who the Spanish, for the most part, kept on good terms with. Word even spread to other tribes up the coast about the Spanish ships, and people came to get a glimpse of the strange men and get some cool stuff. On October 9th, off of what is now Santa Monica Bay, Cabrillo would be impressed by the fine houses and native canoes, the latter of which could hold around a dozen men. These would have belonged to the Chumash people, one of the larger and more advanced tribes in the region. Even here, he heard more stories about the bearded men to the east. So, up the California coast, the Spanish would go. One interesting thing Cabrillo took note of was the smoke they frequently spotted. It turns out that the region's natives used controlled burns. These burns made the lands more attractive to wild animals, which meant better hunting, as well as increased nut production and aided in seed germination. Cabrillo and the Spanish would reach the Carpentaria Valley on October 14th, and then Point Conception, which is just past modern-day Santa Barbara, four days later. As usual, the Indians swarmed out to the Spanish ship, trading fish and other foods for beads and trinkets. Also, it was around here that Cabrillo began to hear stories of a great river to the north. This intrigued him. Perhaps this was the famed Strait of Onion. So what great river were the native peoples talking about? Well, to be honest, we really don't know. The rivers of Southern California are not large. The longest in the southern coastal region is the Salinas River, about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, south of San Francisco Bay. But it's not really very long. Or perhaps the Indians were referring to San Francisco Bay. Another option may have been the Russian River, north of San Francisco. However, another suggestion is the Colorado River, which, while inland, is only a couple of hundred miles to the east. It certainly would have qualified as a great river. Perhaps the language barrier caused some confusion. In the end, we just don't know. The Spanish would stay in the region for about a week due to strong storms before continuing up the coast. On November 11th, a severe storm would cause Victoria to lose all her deck cargo in the night. And then, two days later, the fleet would sight a spot Cabrillo called Cabo de Pinos. This might have been Point Pinos or Point Reyes, both near San Francisco Bay. It is believed that Cabrillo sailed past San Francisco Bay, a common mistake made by other mariners, including Francis Drake a few decades later. The reason for this is that the bay's entrance is frequently cloaked in fog, making spotting the entrance quite difficult. The ships would press north, but the weather would not cooperate. Winter was not far off, and the storms were fiercer and more frequent. And the temperatures were dropping, and the mountains to the east were capped in snow. Now, how far North Cabrillo went, we don't know. He describes reaching a river, so speculation is that it was the Russian River, about 60 miles or 100 kilometers north of San Francisco Bay. No matter, the fleet would turn around in the face of the worsening weather. Now, some of the native tribes were thrilled to see the Spanish again. One tribe had a big celebration with the fleet, with food and music and dancing. The Indians played reed instruments and pipes, while the explorers played tambourines and Spanish bagpipes. The natives had so much fun, the Spanish actually had to chase them away. On November 23, 1542, the three ships returned to the Channel Islands, probably the Santa Catalina Island. Here, Cabrillo elected to overwinter. 
The fleet needed to make repairs and collect supplies. The San Miguel, in particular, was leaking badly. In the new year, they could continue back north. The crew would stay on board the ships and go ashore as necessary. However, as we have seen so often with encounters between native peoples and explorers, the two sides would grow weary of one another. The natives, no doubt, didn't want to share their limited food with 200 extra men, and who knows what happened when it came to interactions with the women. As a result, the two parties began to squabble, and that would lead to open conflict. And it was in this environment that Cabrillo would meet his end. While we don't know the exact date, it was around December 24th. Cabrillo had sent some men ashore to gather water, but they were ambushed. He would lead one of the boats to the shore to rescue his men. What happened next was described by one of the soldiers. Quote, as he, meaning Cabrillo, began to jump out of the boat, one foot struck a rock ledge and he splintered a shinbone. Some other reports say the injury was actually a shoulder, or perhaps both the shin and the shoulder, but it really doesn't matter. The wounded Captain General dragged himself ashore and helped evacuate his men. In the days after the fight, his injury became infected and gangrene would set in. As Cabrillo's health faded, he handed command of the expedition over to his chief pilot, Bartolome Ferrar. He would also try and complete the narrative of the expedition's voyage to the north. Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo would die on January 3, 1542, the result of his injury. He was approximately 43 years old. His men would bury him on the island. Now a quick side note about Cabrillo's burial site. While the strongest evidence is that the Spanish buried him on Santa Catalina Island, some argue it was San Miguel Island, or even one of the other Channel Islands. This confusion is caused by the less-than-ideal charting of these islands by the Spanish. While Cabrillo was an excellent note-taker, the recording of exact locations was a very inexact process in this era. This leads to a lot of confusing information. I mean, it's possible the Spanish spent the winter on a different island other than Santa Catalina, or maybe moved from one island to another. We just don't know. One interesting twist to it all goes back to 1901, when an archaeologist wandering on San Miguel Island which is about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, northwest of Santa Catalina Island, would find a flat stone with some etchings on it that appeared to have the letters JR or JRC. It is, to be honest, hard to discern. Also, there was a cross etched on it. This has led some people to believe that the rock was the headstone to Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo's grave. While this is kind of cool, there's no real way of knowing if it is real. I've looked at the photo of the rock, and the letters are really not that clear, they could easily just be random scrapings. In the end, this makes the rock a curiosity, but nothing more. And as to the question of Cabrillo's burial site, well, the best guess is Santa Catalina, but no one really knows for sure. No matter, side note is done. The fleet would depart Santa Catalina on January 19, 1543. They headed to the mainland looking to take on supplies. However, this was the middle of winter, and many of the native peoples had moved inland, and food was scarce. The fleet would try and push north, but the winter storms were a constant problem. The ships, now under the command of Bartolomo Ferrar, would manage to push at least as far as Cabrillo had done, likely further, but we don't know exactly where. A good, educated guess says they probably would have gotten to around what today is the border of California and Oregon, but even that is a rough guess. In all honesty, we just really don't know. So the fleet's crew would find themselves tired and weakened by injuries, illness, disease, and death. The ships were battered and leaking, and food was short. With all that, the decision was made to head back to New Spain. The three ships would reach Navidad, their origin spot, on April 14, 1543. They had been gone for nine months. And that is how the expedition of Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo would come to an end. 
So at the time, the assessment of Cabrillo's expedition was that it was a failure. The commander was dead, the fleet had been forced to turn around, they had found no northwest passage, they had discovered no great native empires to exploit, they had not reached Asia, and they had found no sign of jewels or gold or silver. Financially, the voyage was a bust. And even the other arm of the endeavor, the ships that had sailed toward the far east under Rui Lopez Villalobos, had failed. They had made it to the Philippines, but attempts to build a settlement had failed. Most of the men had died or were captured by the Portuguese. Villalobos would die in a Portuguese prison in 1544. So in the aftermath of the expedition, Spanish Viceroy Mendoza tried to keep the fleet together with the idea of sending it to the Far East, but instead of that, he would dispatch them to Peru on a trading mission. None of the ships would return, and few of the men. Now, regarding the men of the fleet and its records, a notary named Juan Leon did interview some of the ship's personnel and collected all the journals and logs from the journey. It would have been quite the trove of information, especially since Cabrillo took excellent notes. Unfortunately, none of those records have survived. Or, I should say, some of it has, sort of. Let me explain. As noted, Juan Leon gathered all the written materials from the voyage, and he interviewed some of the expedition's personnel. But what happened to it all, we don't know, which is a terrible shame. However, there is a document that has survived that is an eight-page summary of all those materials. It is believed that Andres de Urdaneta, who we did an episode on not so long ago, was the one who made that summary. And it is from this summary that we know the details of the voyage. Unfortunately, we only have a fraction of the original materials. Now, it's likely that Urdaneta used some of the information that he had seen to help him complete the first-ever west-to-east crossing of the Pacific Ocean in 1565. In fact, when he got back to North America, the first place he spotted was Santa Catalina Island, likely Cabrillo's burial spot. But none of the original material from Cabrillo's expedition or Juan Leon's interviews would ever get back to Spain. And thus Cabrillo was, for the most part, forgotten. There is no reference to Cabrillo and his voyages until 1574, and it wouldn't be until the 1600s that historian Antonio de Herrera wrote up the details of Cabrillo's expedition, sort of putting the man back on the map. It would, however, take some time for people to realize exactly how much Cabrillo and his expedition had accomplished, and much of that would come with the colonization and emergence of California as a political entity. This wouldn't happen until more than 200 years after the death of Cabrillo. Historians would eventually start asking about these early voyages, and thus Cabrillo's expedition would become known to the world. And with that, that pretty much wraps up the life and explorations of Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. The legacy of Cabrillo is not as well acknowledged as other explorers of the day, but what he did was still important. I think the big ding to Cabrillo was that, due to circumstances, his expedition was deemed a failure. He had died, and more importantly, the expedition had been a financial disaster for all parties. The real jewels of the expedition, the logbooks and charts and journals detailing the western coast of North America, were set aside and lost. And you couple this with the fact that the Spanish did not follow in Cabrillo's wake, using his maps and charts, and confirming all the places he had been. Most of the names Cabrillo had assigned to islands and mountains and bays and so forth were thus never used. In the end, much of what Cabrillo had found had to be rediscovered by the Spanish. No matter, Cabrillo is now recognized as the first non-native to sail all the way up the Baja Peninsula on the western side and reach modern-day California. His expedition gave the Spanish crown an initial claim to the region, as well as a general understanding of the people and geography of the area. By the way, this understanding, taken in concert with the expeditions of De Soto and Coronado and others, dissuaded Spain from colonizing these northern areas for decades, or in the case of California, 200 plus years. 
I mean, they now knew there were no great native peoples like the Aztecs to conquer and no cities of gold to plunder. As a little sidetrack, I want to point out that all these expeditions to the north sort of were the last gasp of the classic age of the Spanish conquistador. Sure, there were other soldiers, but the men who had cut a swath through the Caribbean and Central and South America over the past 40 years were gone. Alvarado, De Soto, Narvaez, Pizarro, Ponce de Leon, Balboa, Oriana, Cabrillo, and so many others, all dead in their quest for fame and fortune. Hernan Cortez, probably the most well-known conquistador, was one of the few who actually died a natural death. No matter, the age of the Spanish soldier boldly marching into the wilds of the Americas was mostly past. So, little sidetrack done, I want to make sure we acknowledge the positives of Cabrillo and his accomplishments. In addition to opening up an entirely new region to the world, I think we should note that Cabrillo's expedition gave Andres de Urdaneta key knowledge that helped him plot his way across the Pacific, going west to east. This was critical to establishing the Pacific trade routes between Manila and the New World, routes that would be immensely profitable for the Spanish Empire. Also, I do want to acknowledge Cabrillo did what he did in an intelligent and thoughtful manner. He didn't go north shooting at the natives at every turn, or trying to make them slaves. He was smart, making them allies and trading partners, so he could advance further and further north. And his ship and crew, while suffering losses, generally came through the whole venture in pretty good shape. That is a testament to Cabrillo's leadership. It was only when he had an extended stay with the natives that things went badly, especially for Cabrillo. Now, I do want to say Cabrillo didn't do all of this because he was a nice guy. He did it because he was pragmatic. Anything else was just foolish. The guy, after all, was a conquistador. If he had had an army of 10,000 men, I don't doubt he would have gone in and started colonizing the region, just like he had done in New Spain. Anyhow, a few final notes about Cabrillo and his enduring legacy. First, he did have two sons with his Spanish wife, as well as three daughters with his native wife. Not much is known about them or their descendants, except that they would struggle after the death of Cabrillo, losing much of their land. In fact, legal disputes between Cabrillo's descendants and the Spanish crown would go on until 1617 as they tried to get back lands they had lost. Through these legal proceedings is how we actually know a bit about Cabrillo, as people who had known him offered testimony about the man and his deeds. Second, it would take several centuries, but Cabrillo would become a well-known figure, especially in Southern California. There you will find parks, schools, beaches, buildings, roads, and highways named after the guy. There is a Cabrillo National Monument in San Diego. It overlooks where the Spanish first came ashore back in 1542. The monument includes a big statue of Cabrillo, which was donated by the Portuguese government in 1935, who looked upon the guy as one of their own. Another monument of Cabrillo is found on San Miguel Island. There is a Cabrillo festival every September in San Diego, which includes a reenactment of the landing at Ballast Point. Also, September 28th is Cabrillo Day throughout California. Another thing is the SS Cabrillo, a steamer ship launched in 1914, which served for decades as a ferry between the coast and Santa Catalina Island. Cabrillo even got a U.S. postage stamp in 1992. And finally, the coolest legacy of Cabrillo and his expedition is a replica of Cabrillo's flagship, San Salvador, which was constructed by the Maritime Museum of San Diego in partnership with the Cabrillo National Monument. It is a full-sized, fully functional replica of the San Salvador, and it regularly does tours of the area. And the coolest thing of all this was that I got to go on the San Salvador a few years ago. Now, I didn't go on one of the sailing tours, but I did get to wander throughout the ship, which was really fun. I mean, how could walking around on a 16th century Spanish galleon not be cool? 
And so, that is it for the life and explorations of Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, the first non-native to reach the western coast of the United States. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I wish you and your loved ones good health. Thanks so much for listening. I will see you next time.